Father in heaven, we come today with a very sober and heavy text, and we ask you to use it today to further our understanding of our eternal destiny and the eternal destiny of those who do not repent and turn from their sin in this lifetime. Create with us, within us, an urgency for global missions. Help us to see what your word says and why it is given to us this way. And we pray that you would create new affections within us for the gospel and for global evangelism. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. As you can see from my title this morning, our theme today is a heavy one. We're going to talk about hell. And specifically, we're going to talk about the reality of hell and how it connects to foreign missions. And my aim is to talk to you about something that you all know about, but my guess is you don't feel like I don't feel. And it's this, that hell is real and there are millions of people who are going there. This is particularly important because discussions about hell often take one of two extremes. On the one hand, you have people who deny the reality of hell, calling themselves evangelicals, identifying that hell really isn't real or that it's vanquished in the sense that somehow God takes all those in hell and finds another way to redeem them. One contemporary author says this, History is not tragic. Hell is not forever. Love in the end wins and all will be reconciled to God. Really. The second extreme, not only this issue of denying the reality of hell, here's the second extreme, and that is people who wear placards around and tell people the hell is, hell is near or the end is near, and they shout at them, trying to preach at them, trying to win them into the kingdom, and often putting people in a defensive position or even turning them completely off to the gospel. The tragedy is the fact that hell is an important subject to talk about, and the result has been a muzzling of something that Jesus talked about more than any author in the entire Bible. The Apostle Paul used it in an argument to explain people what the claims of Jesus were when he spoke at the Areopagus and in front of Felix. And as well, subject of, the, of hell has been a, a significant motivator for global evangelism. It was Hudson Taylor who captivated the hearts of England with this tagline as it relates to China. A million a month dying without God. So we're in the middle of our uh, Global Emphasis Month, this REACH conference, and our aim is to try and expand our horizons, to broaden our vision, to fan into flame, if you will, our passion for the Great Commission, to make disciples of all nations. And we want you to get involved. Nate mentioned a couple ways, and I just want to advocate to have maybe you sign up today for one of our meals with our missionaries, or maybe participate in that Bridges class that he mentioned about how to share Christ with Muslims. Find your place to engage during the next um, 10 days. If you were to summarize all that I'm going to say today, what's the burning passion of my heart? What's the reason that we're in this text today? It's this, that our mission is urgent because hell is real. And I know you know this, but today I want to maybe try and help us feel this at a new level. I want you to understand that the church of Jesus Christ is on a mission and that the trajectory of our church and every church is headed somewhere. Your life is headed somewhere. It's, it's not just static. 
And today we're going to look at a passage in the book of Revelation that identifies what the end is of this trajectory of our lives and the trajectory of the church and the trajectory of God's mission in the world. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 20. The book of Revelation in total is about the person of Jesus Christ. It's not just Revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus. And predominantly, it is about his global conquering of the entire world and returning everything back to the way it was supposed to be in the first place. But it was marred by the effects of sin. And it is about the global conquest of Jesus' kingdom. In fact, that's the way the book ends. It begins that way. But it also ends that way. Listen to Revelation 22:20. Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. In other words, this book is written to put you on a footing of readiness and certainty that Jesus is coming again. In other words, that there is an end that's going to come. It's not just going to be like this forever. That everything is moving towards the end. So from Revelation 20, I want to look at three different end events and then connect it to global missions with the aim of helping you understand that our mission is urgent because hell is real. Look at verses 7 and 10. Here is this first end event, the final battle. Verse 7 says this, And when the thousand years are ended... Satan will be released from his prison. Now, if we understand this correctly, it seems that there comes a time when Jesus rules and reigns on the earth a thousand years. And during that time, he's on the throne of David. There's a time of peace, and Satan is bound. But after that time period, that a thousand years, Satan is released to do his last and final attempt to bring an insurgency. Verse 8. He will come out and deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Those two words are figures of speech that refer to arch enemies of Israel. To gather them to battle, and their number is like the sand of the sea. In other words, Satan goes out and tries to gather as many people as he can in this this last rebellion against Jesus, who has been seated in the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem, verse 9, and they march over the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So here we have this attempt by Satan to collude with mankind to overthrow the sitting king of the earth now, Jesus Christ. However, God strikes a final and cosmic blow that results in both the defeat of Satan and those who colluded with him and also punishment for Satan and all those who were on his side. Look at verse 9. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire, notice that, and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. The beast and the false prophet and Satan formed the unholy trinity that that manifests itself during the tribulation. The beast and the false prophet, in advance of the millennial kingdom, are put into the lake of fire. Now the devil himself is put there. It says, and there they will be tormented day and night forever. Now, there are two things that I want you to note here immediately. The first, I've already hinted at this, but I I need to reemphasize it, and it is this, that everything on earth is moving towards this great battle because of the presence of sin that infects the earth and because sin infects all the inhabitants of the earth and this infection of sin is a matter of rebellion when it comes to a holy God. In other words, we live in a realm, in a kingdom, in an environment 
that has rebelled from a sovereign, holy God. We are citizens of an alien and insurgent nation. Our world is not innocent. Every person born into this world is part of this insurgency by their very nature. So this world is fallen, it's corrupt, and therefore it is under, listen, the promise of future judgment. So the world in which you and I live is a world that is moving every day closer and closer and closer to, to, to a coming moment of final judgment. There are no sinless, judgment-avoiding people on earth. The human race has become entirely rebellious, in total. Secondly, note that from this passage we see a real place, a real place called the Lake of Fire, which was created as the place of judgment for those who rebel against the sovereign rule of God's holiness. It is a place that is described very clearly as being occupied by very real people and a place that is eternal. It says, tormented day and night forever. Now, I know that there's some of you that the notion of both the rebelliousness of the human race or the idea of eternal punishment seems to be unthinkable in light of what you believe about a loving and kind and gracious God. And let me be clear, God is loving and kind and gracious, but my answer to your objection that hell might not be real would be to suggest that maybe sin is far worse than what you and I really understand. Maybe God's holiness is so much beyond our ability to comprehend, maybe we don't feel the full weight of His majesty that we really don't understand how bad sin really is. Maybe we're so part of this fallen world that to us, sin feels way too normal in an environment where sin is utter rebellion against the holy God. J.I. Packer, in his excellent little book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, helps us and gives us great advice about how to think about these great mysteries or antinomies in the Bible that just seem to confound the human mind. Here's what he says. We ought not in any case to be surprised when we find mysteries in God's Word. For the Creator is incomprehensible to His creatures, a God who we could understand exhaustively and whose revelation of Himself confronted us with no mysteries whatsoever would be a God in man's image and therefore an imaginary God, not the God of the Bible at all. In other words, there are great mysteries in the Bible. There are things that confound the mind. And I would suggest to you that the things surrounding the end, where everything is headed, are those sort of events. So there's a great battle, a final battle. There's also, secondly notice, a great judgment. Look at verse 11. This is tied to what is commonly called the great white throne. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. This, this passage is loaded with a powerful sense of majesty. That's how it begins. 
the throne, notice, is great. It's a great throne, great in size, great in magnificence, great in glory, and it has an impressive appearance. In fact, in particular, notice that it is described as the great white throne, which can mean bright or gleaming. In Revelation, this word is often used to describe heavenly glory or purity or victory. So this throne is great. It's significant. And from it comes this powerful image of purity and whiteness. In fact, throughout the book of Revelation, white is used for some impressive things connected to the glory of God and particularly related to his judgment. White is used for the image of the Son of Man in chapter 1 and verse 14. It's used of the clothing of the elders who are gathered around the throne in chapter 4 and verse 4. It's used for the horse of the conqueror in chapter 6 and verse 2. It's used of the robes of the martyrs as well as the robes of the people from every tribe, nation, and tongue in chapter 6 and 7. It's used to describe the entire army of heaven. They're all described this way. Why? Because white is the regal and pure color of heaven. If you had to choose one description of what heaven is like, the word would be pure. No sin. It can't be there because God is there. Pure and righteous and holy. White is the regal and pure color of heaven. It is a great white throne. Further, the glory of one who sits on the throne is evident. I believe this to be Jesus according to Acts 10 and verse 42. So this one who is seated on it, notice that from his presence, the earth and the sky fled away. Why? Because the earth and the sky are infected by sin. And so they try and run from the glory of this one who sits on this great throne. But notice in their attempt to run, there's no place to hide. Where are you going to run from the one who holds all of the universe in the palm of his hand? You're going to run to the outer edges of his pinky? Where are you going to run? You can't run from him. So get this. This is a God who is holy and majestic, who knows everything. His purity and his eminence in terms of all of the holiness that he is confounds the mind and everything that is sinful wants to flee from him. But there's no place to go. Because why? Because he holds and is and contains everything that is. In other words, God is in charge and will execute a just sentence about all that has fallen under the control of evil. So there's a throne, there's glory. Notice now the judgment. Verse 12 tells us that there is no one immune from this judgment. There's no one who is too important, no one who is too unimportant, such that they would be exempt. In fact, the text tells us that all the dead, small and great, are there. Verse 12, I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. So everyone stands there. If you look ahead to verse 13, you'll see that it's even repeated. It says that that the sea and death and Hades, which refers to the grave, give up those who are in them. In other words, every single living person has now been brought in front of this great, white, holy, pure throne to meet face-to-face with a holy, righteous, and pure God. And then the text tells us that the books are opened. These, These books are a record, listen, of every thought, every sinful action, 
every evil word, every sinful deed ever done, every sin ever committed is recorded in these books. There's another book called the Book of Life. This book contains the names of those who are covered with the blood of the Lamb. And like a registry book in a city that contains the names of every citizen, so this book of life contains the names of those who are Christ's. It is a remarkable picture to consider that in the book of works, every sin ever committed by every person who's ever lived on planet Earth is recorded. Can you imagine, just imagine with me, what what that must be like to see? And it's, it's not just that they're recorded, but now they're exposed. It's made public. Things done in the secret are now exposed. Everybody sees who everybody really is. Imagine with me the weight of this moment as before the majesty of God as the glory of God is on full display in all of His holiness, and at the same time, while the holiness of God is being displayed, so is displayed the horrendous volume of sins committed on earth. John Phillips captures this moment well. Here's what he says. Listen, the dead, small and great, stand before God. Dead souls are united to dead bodies in a fellowship of horror and despair. Little men and paltry women whose lives were filled with pettiness and selfishness and nasty little sins will be there. Those whose lives amounted to nothing will be there. Those whose sins were drab and dowdy, mean and spiteful, peevish, groveling, vulgar, common and cheap. The great will be there, men who sin with a high hand and with dash, with courage and flair. Men like Alexander and Napoleon and Hitler and Stalin will be present. Men who went in for wickedness on a grand scale and the world was their stage, who died unrepentant at last. And now one and all are arraigned on their way to be damned. A horrible fellowship congregated for the first and last time. Why would the Bible talk like this? Why would God give us this word? Friends, it's not for academic purposes. It's not so you can just study and know more about God. It's given for a warning. It's given to us as a caution about what is yet to come. This is the great and final judgment with no second chances. This is the end. This is the great judgment. But there's more. Look at verse 14 and 15. Here is now the eternal punishment. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire... This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the final battle was incredibly decisive. The great judgment was overwhelmingly final. Here 
Now we see God has won. Sin has been defeated. Satan has been punished. Sin now has been exposed on a colossal scale. Judgment now has been made. And here comes the punishment. This is the ultimate, final, eternal end. This is where everything is leading towards. Everything that is wrong with a rebellious world is now separated from God. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Here, this this lake of fire is a place that has been created by God for the purpose of bringing ultimate justice to rebellious, sin-affected people and to the world. Jesus referred to this place, this lake of fire, as Gehenna. The Greek word that he uses refers to a valley southwest of Jerusalem outside of the city gates called the Valley of Hinnom, which in this valley was often child sacrifices were made in the Old Testament and then eventually became a garbage dump. And people would take, put their garbage out into this valley, lit it on fire, and then over time as more garbage and more fires became prevalent, this valley became a seething cauldron of burning garbage with foul-smelling smoke coming up from it, a a, a valley infested with maggots, a, a horrible disgust despicable place. In fact, Jesus goes on in other parts, in Matthew 8, for instance, to describe Gehenna, or the lake of fire, as a place of total darkness. It's, it's, it's the most isolated, lonely place in the universe, as a place that is banishment, means banishment from God's kingdom, as a place of unending sorrow, a place that is described with fire. Whether or not that's literal fire or figurative fire, we don't know. But this is the way that it is used, fire, to describe the unending torment of hell, used over 20 times in the New Testament. The picture here is of a grotesque and horrifying reality. It's meant to make your stomach turn because hell is that kind of place. A place that is horrific and grotesque. Already in the lake of fire is Satan and the beast and the false prophet. This unholy trinity that surfaced during the great tribulation are now put in the lake of fire and God now in this judgment completes the cosmic cleansing. He takes death and Hades and throws them in it. Death and Hades are personified here as if they're people. They're not, but he takes the concept of death and Hades because they no longer have any place in this pure world. Death, after all, is the consequence of sin. It is the enemy of the believer. Death is a constant reminder of what is wrong with the world. We go to funerals, we try and dress it up, we try and make it comforting, but the reality is the fact that there is death in this world means something is fundamentally wrong with the place that we live. Hades is the grave. It is the repository of death's activity. People die and they go to the grave. And now, since there is no use for the grave and there's no use for death, because they are ultimately conquered through the conquering that happens through Christ over sin, so death and Hades are thrown into this separated realm. Verse 14 In order to add even a further sense of seriousness to this moment, John adds this statement, this is the second death. Second death. Linking it to a second life, second resurrection, in contrast to it. For instance, while there is a second and higher life, John tells us there is also a second and deeper death. So hear me, death doesn't solve your problem. 
And as after life there is no more death, so after the second death there is no life. Meaning no chance of redemption. In other words, this is permanent. There is no second chance. This is the end. So as much as we'd like to believe, well, certainly if they've not heard or they've not received or there'll be another way, no, there isn't. And those who espouse this view, I think, don't really understand the full sense of God's holiness, nor do they understand the tragedy of sin in the world. Now back to the books. It seems that the passage identifies that there is an accounting for all sin that takes place in the world. I don't know how to fully reconcile this with the Bema Seat judgment where believers are evaluated based upon the good that they have done and receive reward or loss thereof. And while it's true that there are no, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, there's a part of me wonders if we as believers aren't still included in the great white throne judgment. In other words, not being condemned doesn't mean that God and everyone doesn't know your sins. And it could be that everyone is there, including those who know Christ. And the evidence of your life is made clear and public and evident and everything you've ever done. Everything is public, it's obvious, it's clear, but yet there's another book. And in that moment of the great white throne judgment, every sin will be atoned for. Every sin will receive a payment. Either it will be paid for by the shed blood of Christ or it will be paid for by eternal torment in hell. So every sin, every sin, the mounting evidence of all of these sins that have been committed, they will all be judged. And God will judge them either by applying the death of Christ to that person's life, your name's written in the book of life, or spending eternity in hell. So the question we all have to wrestle with is, is your name in the book of life? Because you will pay for your sins one way or another. You will pay for them either through the shed blood of Jesus as his sacrifice covers your sins or you will pay for your rebellion in hell. There is is no third alternative. The tragedy of the moment is that when the book of works are read, there is no name found in the book of life. And the absence of one's name in the book of life means that before God, the person stands unforgiven, unholy, guilty, and damned. And the passage ends then with a sober and painful conclusion. Verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so here, this person is a part of the rebellion of the human race, joins Satan, the false prophet, the beast, death, and Hades in the permanent location of ultimate separation from God, a a, a place described only four verses earlier as torment forever and ever. And again, for those of you who could say, "How, how, how could God be like this? How could this happen? My answer would be, you don't understand how big he is and how bad sin is. You see, this is how it all ends. This is where everything is moving towards. This, this is where we are all headed. This is the plan. This is where things are moving. Everything is, is not static. There's a trajectory about history, about the church, about our mission. There's a final battle. There's a great judgment. There's eternal punishment. And I believe we are given this level of detail into what will happen so that we don't succumb to the normal tendency to treat the future as if it is uncertain or hell, as if it was just a bad dream. 
Friends, God is holy, sin is dangerous, hell is real, and people need to know. You need to know. God is holy, sin is dangerous, and hell is real. So what does this then have to do with global missions? My aim today has not been to scare you. I don't want to do that. Although what we're talking about, if we're honest, is scary. My, my motivation, candidly, is to show you what the Bible says and to motivate you. It is to push you. It is to challenge you with the reality of what we are talking about. To try and knock down the excuses that we have for not getting involved in reaching unreached peoples, in not going to minister to people in hard-to-reach places, in, in not having difficult and hard conversations with friends and families and neighbors, to help you blow through the fear that comes and that you would realize Hell is real. Sin is dangerous. And, and, and people need to know. So let me give you five reasons why I think hell is important to missions. Here's the first. Friends, God has told us about hell for a reason. Talking about torment in a fire-saturated, God-separated existence that lasts forever is not easy. I didn't wake up this morning and think, oh good, I get to talk about hell. At the same time, there's a sense of the importance of what we're talking about today. There are some who would suggest that evangelism and global missions are not served well by focusing on hell because it makes God look angry or abusive or vindictive. And so therefore, we'd rather start with things like God has a wonderful plan for your life and he loves you. And while it's true that God has a wonderful plan for your life and while it's true that he loves you, that's not the whole story. It's not. And it behooves us to tell people the whole story because why? Because God has told us the whole story. Hell is important to missions because hell is part of what God has told us. It's his call. We just receive his word. Secondly, hell is important to missions because it shows us the danger of our sin. I would suggest that those who don't believe in an eternal hell have a low view of sin and a wrong view of God. You see, sin is not just some bad things that we do. It's, it's not just the mistakes that we have made. It's, it's not just some things in our past that we've done that we're embarrassed about. Sin is rebellion against the God who ordains what is right and wrong. And sin has affected the entire human race. Romans 3 tells us that everyone has sinned. Romans 3 says there's none righteous, that no one understands or even seeks after God, that no one does any good, Romans 3.12. Further, what's even worse is there's no fear of God before our eyes, meaning we do bad, we do bad, we do bad, and we think we're doing right. There's no fear of God before our eyes. In other words, we are not only in danger, we are also deceived. And this is the condition of the world, in danger and deceived. And how will they know? Unless someone tells them. Third, 
I would suggest to you that hell is an important part of the gospel. Oh, true, the message of hell is not good news per se, but central to the good news of Christ is what you have been saved from. And since hell is what Jesus saved us from, then we need to know that hell is an important part of the gospel. You see, deliverance from condemnation and the forgiveness of our sin is all a part of the gospel message. We were delivered not just from our sins, we were delivered from the wrath of a holy God. So listen to this, you weren't just saved from sin, you were saved from God who in his holiness would deal with your sin. So the fact that Jesus, rather than hell, pays for our sin is all part of the gospel message. Hell is what sin rightly deserves. And so if you've been saved from something that's awful and scary and eternal, then it makes the beauty of the gospel all the more glorious. So the black backdrop of Hell makes the gospel shine even more brightly. Fourth, hell's important to missions because hell can awaken the conscience. You see, part of the enemy's strategy is to keep people blinded to their condition, specifically to the blindness of their eternal punishment. Paul, when preaching to Felix, a governor, talked about judgment. Unless you think that talking about hell is somehow anti-intellectual, Paul, in standing in front of the Areopagus, the philosophers in Athens of that day, talked very specifically about judgment that was to come. Judgment was an important part of the overall gospel message, and it's designed to awaken the conscience. People need to be loved, they need to be persuaded, they need to be convinced, absolutely, but they also, friends, need to be warned. Because hell is serious. And again... Millions of people are headed there. And then here's the final thing. And that is that I think hell creates urgency. At least it should. It is this motivation that actually caused me to preach on this subject during our spotlight on missions. There are real people who are in serious and eternal danger. People who you know. And there are people who you don't know who are in danger because of the reality of sin and the certainty of judgment. And the problem is, is that because of our environment, because of our own desire to make less of what we do, we have a low view of sin. We don't really feel the weight of eternal judgment. And because of that, we don't feel the urgency. And therefore, we remain silent when we should speak out. We're uninvolved when we should be somehow engaged. And we are stingy with our money when we should be able to freely give it in order to advance this cause. The reality of hell should eclipse the things that cause us to act as if it isn't real and as if it isn't serious. People in unreached lands who never hear the message of the gospel will be condemned and justly so unless we reach them. That's how bad sin is. There is no alternative path for salvation. There is no second chance. Sin is serious, hell is real, missions is urgent, and we have got to care. That's, that's the problem with some of us. We, we just don't care. We just can't wait to get home and get pizza, pop, and watch a football game. 
what I want you, I want you to care today. I want you to care about a, a family member who, this isn't theoretical, his name is John. Bob, her name is Sally. It's your mom. It's your sister. It's your brother-in-law. And for a long time, your mouth has been clamped silent because you're afraid. And I want for the reality of the urgency of hell to awaken both their conscience and motivate you to do what you are on this earth to do. Don't scream at them. Don't yell at them. Don't preach at them. But for God's sake and for their sake, tell them. Recently, I was on a trip with my wife, and we were making our way to a terminal for a flight in an airport, and we stopped by to get some coffee at a local little coffee shop in that terminal. We were standing in line with a couple of other people, and right in front of us was the women's bathroom. While we were standing there talking and visiting, a woman ran up the the terminal and was holding her mouth. Clearly, she was ill. She turned left in front of us to try and make it into the bathroom, and she, she didn't make it. And she vomited all over the terminal floor. It happened so fast, she was running, she vomited as she was running, that she ran into the bathroom, and so it happened so quickly that hardly anybody saw it. My wife and I did, but really nobody else did. And, and suddenly, my wife, standing behind me, says, Mark, there are hundreds of people walking down this terminal, they don't see the vomit. And sure enough, they're walking through, trying to get to their, their, their destination, and they're walking right through. So we're, we're saying, stop, 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 and it's not working. They're just trumping right through, like, oh, I'm like, oh, oh, you know, stop, stop. They're, you know, it's stop, they won't, they won't listen. And so I was like, look, I gotta do something. So we were in a queue line with those kind of ropes or those, uh, that tape that goes across that kind of constricts back and forth. And so I, I, I dissembled uh, two posts and the tape, and I, I moved it, and I took it out in the middle of the terminal and put it on either side of the vomit, and I put the black thing across, set it in, and there we go. People could go around, and that way they weren't walking through the vomit. It was settled, and I was very proud of my heroic activities. <laughs> While I was standing there admiring my quick thinking skills, the... Um, coffee shop worker said well who do you think you are and i said excuse me she said who gave you permission to move our ropes and i said ma'am there there's vomit in the middle of the floor and she said you got some nerve and she walked over and she undid the rope and started dragging it back into her queue line and i said ma'am there are hundreds of people coming down this 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 terminal they're going to walk right through the vomit and she said you got some nerve some nerve you got and she put that back in line and just as she was doing that a woman screamed a stewardess had been running to catch her flight and as she came through she slipped in the air landed on her rear end in the middle of that vomit and then dragged all of her luggage right through it yeah that's what we did well, the coffee worker was closest to the woman, and so she went up and helped her up, trying not to get vomit on herself. And I'm standing there looking at this whole scene. And I worked up the baddest evil eye you've ever seen. She came back around, came close to me, and I was outraged. And I said, well, at least you got your rope back. I was preaching then too, I guess, huh? So she dropped her head. She started walking away. She didn't want to look at me, talk to me. And I moved in closer. I wasn't done. And I said to her, you are so selfish. And then her coworkers chimed in. And they said, it's not our responsibility to clean up vomit in the, in the terminal. We're going to get in trouble for moving those ropes. And you're just harassing us. 
If you don't leave us alone, we're going to call the police. I had a lot of things I wanted to say then. <laughs> I just walked away, shook my head, went back to my seat, wait for my airplane. As I'm sitting there just outraged as to what has happened, the Lord brought to mind this text and this sermon. And it's remarkable to me that we say the exact same thing when it comes to talking about hell. It's not my responsibility. I'll get in trouble. You're just harassing us. Sound familiar? I hope today this hits you differently. I hope that you see it. I hope that you feel it. Friends, sin is serious. Hell is real. Missions is urgent. And we have got to care. Father in heaven, change our hearts, we pray, over this thing that we know, but we don't often feel. I thank you for this text. I thank you for its pain in my life on Thursday. As I just prayed on that day, Lord, give me a, give me a new heart about this. And I pray that now as we receive the Lord's table, that you'd remind us of the significance of what we are receiving and the reality of what we have been saved from. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.